0: in each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic. Rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia, which is where we're recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Our topic today is: Should I consider an ESOP? An ESOP is an acronym for Employee Stock Ownership Program, and you know th- this is a topic that sort of comes and goes. You kind of see waves of, of ESOPs uh, popularity in the marketplace. Um, and I don't, frankly, know if we're at a, a crest or a nadir of waves right now. But what I do know is that ESOPs are, are interesting. They are complicated. Uh, they can be accompanied by some risk. But I also am convinced in certain circumstances they are the best, flat out the best way for an owner to exit their business. Um, there are tax advantages to doing so. In some cases, the ESOP is in a position to pay more for a business than any other buyer. Um, and And also, there are business owners out there who have an interest in uh, giving their employees an opportunity to share in the wealth that the business has created, will generate. And that may be in an, in in the ongoing role of the owner, or even after the owner sort of drops off the keys and and retires someplace to Costa Rica. Um, and you know, it, I don't know if this is still true, but for a long time, it's not true because they've emerged since. But for a long time, I think that the largest ESOP in the United States was United Airlines. Um, uh, for a long time, they're an employee. Owned uh, company. They've since merged, I think, with Continental. I can't, I can't keep track now. They're just all in the United States are all McAirlines anyway. Um, but you know, it's it, it's it's probably a topic that at least some of you have have had arise either as a business owner or an advisory capacity. Um, and once you start getting into regulations, the mechanics, it can be dizzying. And I am far from being an expert on this as I am with just about every topic that we bring on the program, which is why we do the program. And so uh, instead of my trying to fumble my way through it, I have brought on my, uh, my friend and colleague, Andre Schnabel, who is principal and managing partner of Tenor Capital Partners, a financial advisory firm that is focused exclusively on the design and installation of employee stock ownership plans. Um, Prior to joining TCP, Andre retired as managing partner of the Atlanta office of Grant Thornton in 2012, and we've known each other uh, long before then. We we were sort of uh, friendly quasi-competitors. Prior to his retirement, he held a variety of positions within the firm in the firm's offices in Zimbabwe, Montreal, Canada, and Atlanta. During his career, he has consulted with mid-market companies in a variety of matters, including mergers and acquisitions, debt and equity financings, including public, public offerings. Since joining Tanner in 2013, again, a very busy retired guy, Andre had been advising companies and shareholders in business succession using ESOPs, including shareholder advocacy, structuring and leading the financing raises. Andre is a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Geology from the University of London and is a CPA. I did not know that you're a scientist. He serves on a number of corporate and, and not-for-profit boards, he has the passionate belief that the advancement of women into leadership positions is not only the right thing to do, but also a business imperative. I strongly agree with that. He partnered with Women in Technology to help create the Woman, uh, Women of the Year Technology Awards that began 17 years ago. For those of you who are not in, in Atlanta, that is a big deal. I think it's one of the two or three most important award ceremonies on the Atlanta tech sector calendar, and I did, I did not know that you helped start that. So good for you, and thank you for doing that. Andre continues his unwavering support for diversity and has been a frequent guest speaker for corporations and associations on the critical importance of diversity within leadership ranks. Women in Technology recognized Andre's contributions in this regard with their Legacy Award. Andre, thanks for coming on the program.
1: Thank you, Mike.
0: So, um, let's let's start with very basic. This first question I ask in almost every interview, it's probably the most important interview for which I'm asking this question so we can set the vocabulary. What is an ESOP?
1: The acronym literally means Employee Stock Ownership Plan. Uh, I would like to say that the acronym, unfortunately, connotes a number of different things for different people. And to some extent, maybe it's the press that it's received has been unfortunate. What an ESOP essentially does, it creates a platform for employee ownership. So this is a mechanism by which a shareholder, a founder, somebody who uh, basically has built a business, it's time for them to consider a variety of options on how to exit. They can either take it public, they can sell to a competitor, they can sell to a, a supplier or other strategic buyer, or they can sell to a financial buyer such as private equity. They seldom think about this other potential exit strategy, which is selling to an ESOP, and therein, I guess, is the basis of this conversation.
0: And I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because in in my line of work, doing a lot of comp- with many companies, I hear people use the term ESOP in connection with stock options, right? And they'll call an employee stock option program and it's descriptive, but factually incorrect, right? So it's important because those two things are about as different. In fact, later today, we were recording a podcast on stock option programs, but that's not what we're talking today. So we're selling, we're selling to an ESOP. And when we say selling to an ESOP, I mean, what, what exactly is the ESOP? I and mean, we, we, we talked about, you said that it is a, a vehicle for employees to, to, to own a company or a portion of a company. Can you expand upon that in terms of what the mechanics of an ESOP actually are?
1: Yes. Basically what happens is one creates a trust, an employee stock ownership trust, and you sell all of the shares of the business from the selling shareholders or a portion of The shares to that trust can be anything from 1% to 100% into the trust for the benefit of all of the employees. And so over time, the trust releases those shares into employee accounts a little bit like a company's match on a 401k plan. And by releasing those shares into employee accounts over the years, those employees enjoy the benefit of the equity appreciation of the company. And on their retirement, they can essentially sell back those shares at fair market value and have created value for themselves. And on the sell side, here is a way for selling shareholders to sell their shares at full value. They're not leaving anything on the table, albeit... They are doing something wonderful for their employees. They're going to get full value, and they get paid out over time, and the
0: employees ultimately get ownership over time. And, and, and the thing that, that strikes me over the head about an ESOP, that makes it – one of the things that makes it so unique um, is the fact that, in effect, you create your own buyer, when you think about it, right? And that just struck me. You say you create a trust, you are in effect creating a vehicle that is going to be the buyer of your own company. I cannot think of any other scenario in which that exists. Well, you're absolutely right. And let's just think about this.
1: I cannot tell you how many times we get a knock on the door and get brought into a potential ESOP opportunity because the potential selling shareholders have been let down or disappointed or left at the altar by a third-party buyer. There is enormous transaction risk when you start talking to a third party about buying your company. You have risk about whether it will ever close. You have risk that the original promise of price is actually met. You have a lot of warranties
0: and reps and escrow. And in fact, get, the price probably won't be met. For we really honest about it, chances are that LOI price ain't going to get paid. That is exactly correct.
1: In a case where you've created your own buyer, nothing in the business from an operational standpoint changes whatsoever so employees don't get unsettled that anything negative has ch- happened. And you know the deal terms before you pull the trigger. So you don't, there is no transaction risk. There's no integration risk. It's not as if a third party now has to integrate the buyer, the the business that they've just bought into their own business. And as a result, the trustee is prepared to pay total and full value in spite of the fact that the employees get a wonderful
0: benefit over time. And you know that that last part—I I don't know how relevant it is to the podcast, but it, it it does bear it 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 does bear highlighting in that one of the greatest gifts that you can give, I think, anybody, is a functioning, operating, viable business, right? And I I say that I do a lot of work with with um, uh, succession planning, and I I strongly encourage. People wherever they can, if they have a business, if they can keep it in the family to, to do so. And maybe that'll be a, and we've had a new topic on succession planning, but anyway, you know, giving that same thing to employees, especially in a time where retirement is very uncertain, right? Depending on your ideology, you may or may not think that social security and Medicaid slash Medicare are going to be out there in 30 years. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But one thing we, one thing we do know for certain is that most of us are going to live longer than we ever thought we would, right? And one of the best hedges against that is ownership of a viable going concern.
1: Absolutely correct. And in addition to having ownership in a viable concern, there is significant empirical research that supports the fact that employee ownership as opposed to selling to a third party and in particular selling to private equity, will in fact create a business that outperforms a business owned by private equity. Productivity, employment, wage rates, all move in the wrong direction when purchased by private equity. And I don't want to be disparaging about private equity. There is a wonderful place in our economic Uh, uh, macroeconomic equation for private equity and capital formation. But one of the negatives is that private equity, in order to enhance returns, do things sometimes that are very
0: much negative for the performance of that business and the experience of employees. Yeah, it brings up an interesting point. I'm going to, I'm going to take a little sidebar here. Um, one of the things I've been studying a lot is business holding periods. And one of the things that I'm learning is that basically the longer you hold on to a business, the better it performs. In fact, there's data to suggest that at a 20 year threshold, the average stock has less risk than the typical bond over the same period. And that's St. Louis fed data. And, the thing that that has struck me about private equity and this this is where this is relevant to the esop is that private equity has a structural problem and that it has a it has a countdown right private equity must sell in some period of time very few private equity funds have more than a 10 year vintage we're starting to see some 20 year but those are very much kind of unicorns which means that Depending on what, at what point in the firm's, the P fund's life cycle the company's been bought, the holding period may be somewhere between three to seven years. And that creates distortions as opposed to an ESOP, which is definitionally, definitionally a long-term owner, a buy and hold structure. If you accept my premise that the, that the time horizon is meaningful to the business outcome, by definition, then, the ESOP is structured to build that better outcome, not because they're better, smarter, more noble, more better motivated, but simply because they have more time.
1: Well, I wonder if I could uh, provide a specific data point Please. that takes that broad conceptual observation and brings it down to, uh, down to earth. Um, we happen to be in a bank building, I have done about 10 transactions with this bank. This bank has provided the senior debt on a leveraged ESOP transaction. I don't know the total number of millions of dollars that those 10 transactions aggregate, but the lead ESOP lender for this bank gave me an interesting statistic a few months ago. If you can consider 10 borrowers, because essentially these 10 companies, the shareholders sold their stock to a trust, the company borrowed money to pay off the selling shareholders. And so we've got 10 companies who are 10 borrowers of this very bank. Of those 10 loans, each quarter... The bank measures covenants, and so they have acutely tuned into the performance of these 10 companies. One of these borrowers had a covenant breach in one quarter. And so over the six years that I have been doing this, with this particular bank, those 10 companies, they have 10 performing loans, and they are performing not only in accordance with the prescribed documents. But in fact, in every case, they've accelerated the delevering process because
0: of the structure that an ESOP provides. So um, ESOPs sound great. Why, isn't every com- why is not every company an ESOP? Should every company be an ESOP?
1: No. I think that if we design each transaction based on the priorities and strategic objectives of the selling shareholders. And not every company is either performing at the level that one needs in order to accomplish those objectives, or the balance sheet of the company may not be strong enough to support the structure that we design, The growth rates may not be appropriate. There may be a number of reasons that a particular business is either not ready or not suited to this particular exit strategy. So I'm not saying that uh, there are an enormous number of hurdles to jump over in order to be eligible, but there are companies that are far more suitable for this transaction than others. But what I can tell you, for those that do Fit nicely into this model. There is nothing that comes close
0: to competing with it. So let, let's uh, let let's dig into that because I think that's that's really kind of the main course of this of this interview. Profile for me the characteristics of a great ESOP candidate, please.
1: A great ESOP candidate uh, is a is a business that employs employs at least. 20, 25 employees. These are general guidelines. Is profitable, has been around for several years so that they are an attractive borrower to a bank. And finally, the value of the business tracks with the business's ability to throw off cash. In other words, if we have a business that is worth $100 million dollars, but isn't profitable, or is worth $100 million and throws off $1 or $2 million in cash, it's probably not the best candidate for an ESOP. So we're looking for businesses where the enterprise value of the business is tied very closely to the cash that it throws off. Generally in this market, valuations somewhere between 5 and 10 times EBITDA, those are the kinds of businesses that really fit very, very well into this ESOP model. Give me, I'll give you an example of something that doesn't fit. If we've got a software company that has built an enormous amount of intellectual property that it hasn't yet monetized, in other words, it's early in its market cycle, I don't think that's a good ESOP candidate. A business that is a multi-generational manufacturer of widgets, that has been profitable, That is got a very strong balance sheet, a perfect example
0: of a wonderful candidate for an ESOP exit. Um, and so you touched on, on valuation, which of course is a topic near and dear to my heart. And, and I want to explore that just a little bit with you because um, what you're highlighting that I think is very important here is that not all values are alike. And... and and your example I think is very apt. For example, that software company if I were to perform an appraisal may very well exhibit a value of say 20 million dollars, right? But the thing may very well be pre-revenue, certainly pre-profit, and and the value of that company is derived primarily from a strategic fit for a potential for you know, potential strategic buyer basically. Google, Microsoft, Oracle, Facebook decides that they just sort of have to have it, and there's nothing wrong with that value. But the that but that the thesis of that value is inconsistent with the thesis of the ESOP because, in, in effect, that 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 market-based value this this gets into so many interesting questions. I gotta keep my mind on topic. That thesis of value is sort of a flipper value, right? As opposed to an ESOP where a cash-driven value implies again a buy and hold strategy and it must be able to support and sustain a buy and hold investment and ownership thesis. Um, that that is all correct. There are two elements within a,
1: most ESOP uh, structures and ESOP design transactions. The one is that the selling shareholders get paid over time, but they want a down payment. That down payment generally represents somewhere between 30 and 50% of the entire value of the business. And where does that money come from? It comes from a lender. The lender may sell to a software company pre-revenue, but it's unlikely to. They would love to lend to a business that is cash flowing. And so with the added tax benefits, banks love to lend to ESOPs. And that money goes into the pockets of the selling shareholders and then the remainder of the selling price will come from the profitability of the business going forward so that the selling shareholders are paid out in total over, let's say, a five to seven year period. There are a number of bells and whistles that we haven't touched upon here that make the transaction even more attractive to the selling shareholder than them getting full and fair value over a multi-year
0: payout. And, and I want to touch upon that, before, but before I forget, I want to, I want to clarify or, or bring one issue in terms of the characteristics of an ESOP to your attention or, or for your comment, really. And, and, and that is that although the ideal candidate, as you said, and I, I agree with this, certainly that you know, the multi-generational manufacturing company, lots of fixed assets is an ideal candidate. You don't necessarily have to be that to be a viable ESOP. For example, uh, there is a stereotype that architecture and engineering firms seem to make very good ESOP candidates and they're unlikely to, they don't manufacture things. They're a professional services firm, but for whatever reason, they seem to find ESOPs as there seems to be a match there with ESOPs. A, is that true? And B, why do you suppose that is? And then C, if you can remember all these questions is can that be applied to other services firms, maybe even accounting firms?
1: Uh, First of all, it is true. Uh, Secondly, the reason is why are ESOPs attractive to professional services? Professional service firms' primary driver of growth, in addition to market conditions, is the attraction and retention of talent. And ESOP provides a unique opportunity for a future employee to look at two offers and say, in one situation, I'm simply going to get a paycheck. In the other situation, I'm going to get the same paycheck plus ownership over time, which is more attractive. And so ESOP-owned professional service firms are com- have got competitive advantage in attracting and retaining talent, which is the lifeblood of professional services. Now, in terms of what kinds of professional service firms work, we've done in our firm, Tenor Capital, we've done architects and engineers, we've done general construction, we've done uh, intermediaries in consultants, marketing consultants, for example. And as you may recall, we've done one for your your firm, and they were a professional services firm themselves. Um, Whether this would work for an accounting firm uh, or for a law firm, for that matter, the answer is yes, but there's certain regulatory hurdles that one has to consider when you consider a law firm or an accounting firm, because... The regulators of those professions generally require that the shareholder or a principal in an accounting firm is an accountant. In an ESOP, everybody, including support staff, including the person at the front desk who answers the phone, will be a shareholder and one has to navigate the regulatory environment, which one certainly can do, before one can actually execute an effective transaction for professional
0: services. Now, why are banks interested in lending to such ESOPs? Because the, the, the fixed assets are not going to be there, right? The, the traditional collateral, as we would think about it, is not there. Um, how do banks get comfortable with that?
1: Well, they, the the fixed assets are not there in professional services. Right, the fixed assets uh, are certainly there for other kinds of ESOP transactions. Uh, banks become uh, comfortable because they lend on collateral, yes, but they also lend on cash flows, and an ESOP transaction in the cash flows are actually enhanced when the owner of a company is an ESOP compared to a traditional individual like you and me. Most smaller businesses in the United States are S-corporations. And that means that the company itself is not a tax-paying entity, but the shareholders that own the business are. In order for those shareholders to pay their tax liability each year, to make a distribution of cash to those shareholders well if instead of those shareholders you replace those shareholders with a tax exempt trust which is what an employee stock ownership trust is then overnight you are no longer required to make tax distributions to your shareholder because your shareholder has no tax liability so all of a sudden a hundred cents in the dollar that you make you keep and can be used to pay off the bank as opposed to only 60 cents in the dollar or 70 cents in the dollar. So you have immediately enhanced the borrowing power of a company, which is obviously very attractive to a lender. And that is why they look at these things and enjoy uh, the possibility of lending to an ESOP, even if it is a professional service firm that doesn't have hard collateral.
0: Okay, so let's say by now we've convinced some of our listeners that an ESOP is a viable vehicle. What's involved in setting one of these programs up?
1: Well, we've talked about the formation of a buyer, which is the trust itself. Right. And one needs to obtain a trustee. Now, the company itself could nominate a an executive to be a trustee. It's not something that I would recommend, but it can be done. So let's assume that you follow my recommendation and get an independent trustee. So you need a trust and you need an independent trustee. And on an ongoing basis, you need a third-party administrator who is the person that does a lot of the day-to-day mechanics so that an employee when they want to see how many shares they have in their account, they need an annual statement. That annual statement is produced by a third-party administrator. So those individuals have to be put in place, and there is an annual cost associated with those individuals. The cost is very manageable, and I will say that, quite frankly, this is more... A misconception than reality that this is a complicated affair to set in place, there is certain costs for a small business, let's say worth twenty five million dollars and less. the average annual cost is somewhere around fifty thousand dollars for all of these activities combined
0: so pretty reasonable right that's, you know, that's a pretty a, reasonable a, a junior employee basically. Mm-hmm. So – and one other feature that I, I, I want to bring up a tip also is that an ESOP, uh, when it's formed, is typically accompanied by some form of third-party appraisal, right, which is an effect of fairness opinion. And the, the role of that exercise is basically, in effect, to prove to the bank that the asset they're buying is worth what they're lending against, I think – and second, I think it also has something to do with communicating to the shareholders now what it is they're actually receiving. And then there's an ongoing need for that as, as well. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes,
1: I apologize that it didn't bring up the valuation firm at the outset as to the, the annual running costs, but you're absolutely right. The trustee that is essentially representing the trust as the buyer, from a legal standpoint, cannot pay more than fair value for the shares. And so they get a valuation firm to give them a valuation to ensure that they don't overpay for the business. On an annual basis, that valuation is updated so that the employees know the value of the number of shares that they hold in their account. So that when they retire, they know the value that they're going to get for those shares so that they can then take that cash and use it to put bread on the table. So yes, a valuation is required for the transaction itself, the sale, and it is required on an annual basis to maintain the, uh, essentially the efficacy of the plan.
0: And, and that valuation on an ongoing basis will also serve as the basis, or to set, as the basis for setting the price at which shares will be repurchased for, you know, or in effect redeemed, correct? That is correct. Yes. So you know it's, it's a big deal and in my experience. The the valuation part is among, if not the most expensive part of the ESOP.
1: Well, uh, I, I can give you some numbers, and you know this business better than I do. Uh, it, it the the value the cost associated uh, with giving the trustee what they need that fairness opinion is heavily dependent on the target company. Uh, Generally speaking, the larger the transaction, the more expensive the valuation, but also the complexity of the valuation may be driven by the kind of business that the company is in. The valuation, therefore, can be anything from $25,000 up, depending on the size and complexity. However, we haven't talked about all the savings associated with this transaction, which generally funds all of these expenses. And without getting ahead of myself, uh, when we get to that point, you will very quickly see that selling to an ESOP is less expensive than selling to a third party.
0: Well, you know what? It's Friday. Let's go ahead and get ahead of ourselves. So right. <laughs> let, let's talk about what those cost savings look like because they are they are significant, but they're also a little bit complicated. So let's walk through that a little bit. Okay.
1: Well, uh, essentially, uh, a, an ESOP-owned company gets a unique set of tax deductions that no other entity gets. We've already talked about the fact that if it's an S-Corp, you don't even care what tax deductions you've got because the company is effectively a tax-exempt entity. But let's assume that it's a C-Corp. The C-Corp gets a tax deduction equal to 25% of its payroll over and above the, its payroll itself. Wow! So essentially they get a tax deduction which represents 125% of its payroll. So if a company is a professional services firm where its primary cost of delivery is salaries and compensation, you can imagine that it's very easy to drive down your taxable income to zero when you've got that tax deduction which represents 125% of your primary cost. In manufacturing, same thing. Labor cost is huge. So you've got a huge tax deduction. So what is the value associated with that 25% tax deduction? It usually exceeds the cost of that valuation that you were talking about. And so effectively, it is a very tax efficient and cost efficient way of selling your business.
0: Now, do all employees participate in the ESOP? Do some have the is there an option to exclude them either from some employees, either from the owner's side or from the employee side, if they choose they don't want to be a member?
1: No, there okay. is no choice. This is a qualified plan, and you cannot discriminate. Everybody has to participate. Now, their level of participation is dependent on their personal compensation. So not everybody participates at the same level, but everybody is required to participate at
0: some level. Okay. So one of the thing, the other the other features of an ESOP that makes it so different is that it is a government regulated entity, right? By the Department of Labor, if I'm not mistaken, under uh, ERISA from the 1970s, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. If I did that correctly. Well done, Michael. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. Um, what are the implications of that external regulation? Do they, do they add a level of risk? Do they, do they interfere in the business? Is there a lot of activity where the Department of Labor is 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 taking actions against companies? How, how do you see that environment? Um, let us consider the Department of Labor as you might
1: consider the IRS. As a company that is a taxpayer, you're always subject to a potential audit And if you've been doing something that is untoward or potentially illegal or irresponsible, you may get sideways with the IRS. The same thing with the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor has the right to audit the filings that an ESOP is required to file every year. But in the event that that filing doesn't raise any questions, you don't hear from the Department of Labor. If you've been doing something a little strange or something that raises a number of questions, then it is true. You're subject to a Department of Labor audit. And if they believe that there is something that is being done that is inappropriate, you are potentially subject to legal risk as a result of that. So I don't consider the risks to be enhanced any more than somebody who doesn't pay their taxes, and they should. So there have been court cases uh, brought against trustees and selling shareholders uh, as a result of litigation brought by employees and third parties, but that is infrequent. And when you look at the history, the, the chances of that happening is as remote as you being thrown
0: into jail because you were a bad boy by the IRS. Okay. Okay. So – and that actually touches on one question that I want to make sure we get back to, which is the ongoing role of the trustee, right? And and for our listeners, you know, the, the, the trustee's role in ESOP, as I understand, is that of a fiduciary, meaning that the trustee is there to represent the interests of the employees who are the participants in the ESOP. How involved or engaged is a trustee in – The business of the ESOP? Do they effectively serve as a board member? Do they have veto rights over certain corporate actions? What does that role look like? That's a great question, Mike,
1: and we get that question a lot from selling shareholders. The reality is that the selling shareholder, although they have sold a part of their company or potentially 100% of their company, they still control the board of directors. The trustee has absolutely no interest in being a board member or in running the board or participating in running the business. They know as well as anybody that the people who built this business are the best people to run this business. Having said that, there are certain items where trustee approval is required and where a vote of the shares held in the trust is required. An example would be if a ESOP-owned company um, is approached by a third party to buy the business, then the board of directors has to consider whether that offer would be good for all the shareholders, which includes the employees who are represented by the trustee. And so in the sale of a business to a third party, the trustee needs to support the transaction. Generally, what would happen? The board would evaluate the transaction, would conclude that this is a deal that they'd like to do, and then they would approach the trustee and show why this is good for all shareholders, and the trustee would sign off. But on all operating decisions and most strategic decisions, the trustee has absolutely no interest. In the absence of something nefarious occurring, if the trustee became suspicious that there was, for example, the selling shareholders had granted a bonus or a distribution to themselves uh, outside of the agreed-upon deal terms, then the trustee would have a right to demand an explanation. But they are quite frankly, from a practical standpoint, invisible other than once a year reviewing the annual valuation that we talked about previously.
0: Okay. Um, So we're running out of time. I have time for a couple more questions. Um, One question I want to make sure I get out there is uh, how permanent is an ESOP if 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 I decide you know, I have a company decided I kind of go do an ESOP, but I'm concerned maybe five years from now, maybe I don't like the ESOP so much. Can an ESOP be canceled, terminated like a like a benefit plan sometimes is, or once it's there, is it pretty much there, carved in stone?
1: Um, the 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 answer is once you've decided to sell your business to an ESOP, uh, they are the Uh, They are now the owners. And in the event that you want to buy back your business, which is absolutely within your power, you need to cut a deal with now the seller who is the trustee. Just as selling to a third party needs a trustee approval, if you want to buy it back, you need trustee approval. So it is cast in stone in the sense that you can't just tear up the documents and pretend it never happened, uh, but you can uh, very much reverse it by buying it back or selling to a third party. In fact, an ESOP-owned company is a wonderful vehicle for an intermediate step in a roll-up. For example, if you want a professional services firm, sell it to an ESOP, you now have a tax-exempt entity that has a lot of cash and a very attractive platform to be a buyer for other professional service firms. So you can build a business, you can grow your business through acquisitions before you decide to sell the entire shooting match to a third party. So it is a wonderful way to build wealth and then flip it out to a third party using an ESOP platform to accelerate that growth because you preserve cash because of the tax efficiency we talked about.
0: Uh, So in effect, it's really no different than if you have another shareholder in your company you say, hey, I'd like to buy your share. Okay, let's talk. Or I'm not interested. Same kind of conversation. That is correct. That is correct.
1: There is one thing that we haven't talked about, and because we're getting to the end of our time that I want to bring up, that the selling shareholders, they sell their company for fair value, but there is also an opportunity for them to get an amount over and above fair value. And that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Let me tell you how that happens. Because the selling shareholders are waiting for all of their money, they get compensated for that wait, and they get compensated by being issued warrants in the business. And a warrant is the right to buy shares in the business at a price that is agreed upon. And so as the business grows after you've sold the business, their warrant position becomes more and more valuable. That warrant position can be as much as 20 or 30% of the entire business. So if you just think about this, if you've got a growing business, that 20 or 30% uh, will grow in a business that is no longer paying taxes. Very often, over a decade, that 20 or 30% is worth more than the entire business was worth the day you sold it. So, that Warren position should not be forgotten. It is something that is unique to these, these ESOPs.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because, candidly, I did not know that. Um- and you're right. It does sound too good to be true. It sounds very much like, like uh, you know, literally getting two bites of, of the apple. That's right. You this sell is... your company, but you still maintain a foothold in the company, so you're, you participate in the upside.
1: Absolutely. It is the second bite of the apple. Um, but you're financing a transaction that is for the benefit of employees. You deserve compensation, and you get that compensation through the warrant position we've been talking about.
0: Well, we've we've covered a lot of ground here, and, and thank you, Andre, for helping us work through what is a very technical and complex topic, a lot of moving parts. Um, I suspect a few listeners will find that they want to learn more about ESOPS to see if it's right for their company. How can they reach you to learn more about this topic?
1: Well, my name is Andre Schnabel, and my telephone number, 404-372-2759, and pay Tenorcapital.com, a visit on the web, and you'll see how to get hold of us by email,
0: and you can get
1: to learn a little bit more about our firm.
0: Okay. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Andre Schnabel so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.